You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he wants to dance with somebody who loves him. <laughs> it's Mr. Jeff McLarge. It's true, and often I dance alone. <laughs> Nobody so. loves me. Everybody hates me. <laughs> no, I dance alone because the only person I love is myself. I don't generally uh, you get... You and Billy Idol. I don't generally get all chitty chatty about like stuff that i'm a fan of other than when we get into music conversations or conversations about books and stuff but i had the opportunity to enjoy a fandom that i have carried on since i was a very young person and i went to the movie theater to see shin ultraman with my son who's 21 years old now uh, this week which is a for those of you who don't know what shin ultraman is ultraman is a, a japanese tv character from the 1960s, who's had this recurring series of special effect-laden, monster-fighting goofiness since then. Uh And the director of a recent Godzilla film has directed a very staid and serious version of that show as a feature film. And it was so much fun to go and see. That's cool. Where was that? The pandemic has changed the the movie industry for the better. So there are, like, cinemas now... That bring in weird films and sell tickets to them and do like special events of classic or older films to try and just draw people back to the popcorn maker and the yep. 14 gallons of soda dispenser. This is one of those things. So it was through AMC and yep. it was uh, it was something that they did. So I had okay, to pre- so you going to answer my question? Was it, <laughs> well, was it like in Manchester? Or? Oh, yeah, it was here. It was it was the only place it was showing around here was in Londonderry. So it was like this little little okay. eight cinema theater here in Londonderry, New Hampshire. All right. That sound well. It sounded like it would have been like, you know, something that would happen in a bigger metropolitan area to get more people. Well, it's you know, Londonderry is not that big of a town. No, it's not. And and it's funny because in a few years back, when the same director released Shin Godzilla, that yep. played for two days the same way this one did. But it was only in Boston. I drove all the way to Boston with my son and daughter to try and see it, and I couldn't get tickets. So in this huh. one, I bought the tickets online as soon as it was announced and was able to go. And what surprised me more than anything is I was telling uh, my son as we were sitting there, we're probably going to be the only people in the cinema. Sure. And you know what? We weren't. It was like two-thirds full. There were probably 30, 40 people who were there to see Shin Ultraman yesterday. Yeah, it was great. Wow. That's it was, it was that's really, really cool. interesting. And like I said, because like in Londonderry, that's uh, like I said, a small town. Yeah. Because we used to do, and I, I've, I haven't been in a couple of years, you know, because of the pandemic and two, it's hard to find people to go. There is a movie theater in Boston called The Coolidge yeah. that does like midnight showings. Yes, I've been to that stuff. cinema. Um, yeah. That's where I saw Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer on a date. Oh, no. Yes, at midnight. <laughs> 
The legendary. The legendary last so date. They used to do something like twice a year, and I couldn't obviously go to the ones in October, but I would catch it on the half one in uh, in April. They would do this thing called the Feast of the Flesh, and it was really awesome. It would be right. a zombie movie, and there would also be a band that would play, and then they would also do burlesque show. Really so cool. So it would be like a whole night event, and people would dress up and stuff. It was a good time. Yeah. You know? And, you know, not as niche as, you know, Shin Ultraman. It was right in the middle of Boston, though, so you're going to get all the college yeah. You know, the college students and stuff like that. Yeah, we don't have the college student audience really here in the area of New Hampshire that I'm in. So you right. got to go further north to Manchester or further west towards Keene. I like stuff like that, though. I like stuff that brings out, like, the true fans. Not just the people that say, hey, let's go see a movie on a Friday night. Right. You know, it's the people that are there because they want to be there. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. And it's not like... Um, well, the distributors of the film weren't aware that the majority of their audience was going to be people who knew who Ultraman was, but they still had a right. three-minute thing that ran before the film that said, Ultraman in three minutes, and it just showed like a list of monsters and pictures of monsters for anybody who was like, Ultraman? Well, I don't know. I'll go see that, I guess. Um, yeah. So they weren't completely <laughs> baffled by the story. It was, it was really, it was really fun. Hey, this week's very popular and always well-received trivia question, mm-hmm. is a uh, is about a movie. Oh, good. And you can make an argument that it's about a horror movie. <laughs> oh, all right. All right. You're familiar with the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory from 1960... It's either 68 or 69. But the original, the one I'm talking about, you know, with Gene Wilder. And all yes, that, right? the one where the snozberries taste like snozberries. Yes, I remember that very well. Exactly. Now, at the beginning of the movie, everybody's in a rush looking around for the golden tickets that's going to give them access to the uh, chocolate factory in question. Yes. And your friend and mine, Charlie, and his deadbeat, lazy-ass uncle, or grandfather, or whatever he was. Oh, yeah, grandfather. Yeah, Grandpa Joe. Grandpa Joe. Yeah, his grandfather. Yeah. Uh, So they they get the very last ticket. But who found the first golden ticket? Ah. That's a great question. Isn't it? It is indeed. I'll tell you at the end of the show. We will get the answer at the end of the show. All right. But this is going to be the week beginning, February the 20th, and it is your turn to start. But uh, 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 cue the music, guys. It's the end of the world as we know it. February 20th, 1524, a mathematician and astronomer from Germany named Johannes Stoffler predicts a worldwide flood. To take place on this date because of the way the planets aligned in the <laughs> constellation of Pisces. So there's a mix of astronomy and astrology. That's a water sign! As we know from our years and years and years of doing this show, it means absolutely nothing. Publicized that this was going to happen, and of course, because it's 1524, a guy with money, Count von Eagleheim, who's a local landlord, started to build a three-story ark, assuming that everyone would die in a flood. As this day started and his ark was complete... It started to rain, which caused a massive riot with uh, hundreds of deaths. And the Count being pulled out of his, uh, I'm going to guess, his rather large abode and stoned to death in the street. That is is super funny. (laughs) Well, not for for Count Eaglehofer or Eaglehheim. Can you imagine? Here it is. It's 1520 what? 1524? 1524. Can you imagine? It's like 1524. Everyone's laughing at this guy because... You know, he's using Zodiac signs, and then it starts to rain, and then just, like, everybody just loses their mind trying to, like, get into this arc. I'm going to get on that boat. They're not leaving without me. Like, the original arc 
uh, you know, from from the book. <laughs> um, uh, obviously, you know, they never really found it, but the the specifics of it, it's about the size of a football stadium, right? Yes. I don't know how big this guy's arc was. I know it was three stories, you know, but... You could make a very I, like, tall big... but very short ship, yes. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. If, I mean, obviously, it's going to be wider than it is tall. I don't know much about boats, but I know they they don't float if they're standing upright like that. Well, what I want to know is, like, where in Germany was he? Well, I guess it doesn't matter because you don't need a coast if there's going to be a catastrophic flood that the planets line up with the constellation or the, the zodiac sign of Pisces, the fish. <laughs> At any rate, you know, let this be a lesson to you kids. And also remember, kids, when you post your horoscope online... <laughs> 11 out of 12 people don't give a <laughs> shit. <laughs> and I knew this because Mercury was in retrograde. Or non-retrograde. Mercury was in Gatorade. It was in lemon, lemonade. <laughs> All right, so February the 21st of 1981, mm. Charles Walker clearly drops an F-bomb on Saturday Night Live and is, like, immediately removed and uh, not welcome back to the show. No, the next week when they play the saxophone and they show all the cast, Charlie Rocket's not in it. Yep. I've watched the clip of this a couple of dozen times now, and there's yep. some argument as to whether or not he said the F word by mistake or if he did it on purpose to like sort of give the F you to uh, Lauren Michaels so that he can get out of his contract, yep. which knowing that Charlie Rocket, Charles Rocket didn't do a ton of stuff on American TV afterwards makes me think that he probably did do it on purpose to get out of being on SNL because he hated it. He's probably best right. known to folks now because, I mean, 81, I was little. Sure. Littler than I am now. So not much littler, but littler. is He was the villain in Dumb and Dumber. He was the guy who would uh, who had the, the was ransoming Lauren Hawley. Right, okay, yeah, him and uh, Duffy there that she used to be on MTV. She yes. was also the villain. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, not the only time f bombs got dropped on Saturday Night Live. I remember Kristen Stewart, uh, probably best known for Adventureland, uh, but Kristen. Stewart... <laughs> not the movie about uh, Lita Ford. There was it the the Runaways. No, 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 not at all, and certainly not Twilight. But anyway, Kristen Stewart was on Saturday Night Live. She like conversationally dropped an f bomb during her monologue, and you could just see her eyes like light up, and she was like, "Well." Guess I won't be working here anymore or something to that that nature, yeah. I don't think, uh, certainly, it's not the only time someone's dropped the F-bomb on SNL, but I think Charlie Rocket was the first time. Sure. And, again, he was summarily fired, and it was that was one of the only really long-standing rules that that show has had since it started, because it was live. You had to be really careful, because Lauren Michaels didn't want the show to get booted off the air. And, well, the thing is, like, you know, we talked about before with Richard Pryor, they had a, you know, a delay. Right. You know, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to call the, the semantics police on you if you have a seven-second delay. That's not live. That's live enough, you know. So if somebody like Charles or Kristen Stewart or whoever, you know, accidentally or purposely drops an F-bomb, you can bleep it out. And you don't have to worry about the FCC coming to town. Well, I, I think part of it, too, though, is that if when you institute that, even if it's a seven-second delay, what you're doing is you're tacitly giving approval to being able to use that language as you write the sketches, knowing it'll be bleeped. And I think oh, he, sure. he okay. wanted to avoid that, too. So it would force the writers to not go for that easy swear word laugh. All right. So let's move on to the 22nd. 
February 22nd, 1986, music television, MTV, airs 22 yeah. hours of the monkeys in a row. Wow. Yeah, 22 hours of monkeys episodes. That, if you're counting, is 44 episodes, kids, in celebration yeah. of their 20th Rough. anniversary. I remember that. I remember that being, like, a huge deal. Yeah. They, like, promoted it happening for weeks in advance. Yes. You know, then they aired, and, like, it was all day, and... I watched. I watched a good chunk of that. Yep. I we've discussed. We both love the monkeys. Yeah. We both love the monkeys television show. Mm-hmm. And the monkeys, like you said, forty four episodes. That's not a lot. That's not a lot of episodes. It's not something that they could put into syndication on like the UHF channels when we were kids. Right. So it used to be a bit of a an event or a treat whenever the monkeys would come on at 2 o'clock in the afternoon uh, during the summer. They would only air the monkeys during the summer. Right. That? Because, yeah, because they didn't have 100 episodes. They were still sold into syndication, but it was really limited. It was Star Trek was like that, too. Star Trek has fewer yeah. than 100 episodes. But this ended up being a huge a renaissance for uh, the monkeys, and yes. they had a, a, a comeback after that. They did. It even encouraged Mike Nesmith to come back for a little while after they recorded a couple of new songs. One was an old Paul Revere and the Raiders song called Kicks. And another one was yep. the other single, That Was Then, This Is Now. And they started a world tour, the 20th anniversary world tour, which was the, the highest grossing tour of 1986. Wow. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, That Was Then, This Is Now, that was the name of the the greatest hits that they released. Yes. At the same time, they had a couple of like yeah new singles on it. Yes. Um. Yeah, they went out on tour. Michael Nesmith was kind of, uh, you know, stuck to his guns at that point because he did not go on that reunion tour. With right, him, which and is a bit of a shame. It is, especially it took it took a long, long time for him to get comfortable, I guess, with the legacy of the Monkees' music. And it was only in his last couple of years that he really embraced the songs that he wrote and that he didn't write but sang or played along with in the band. Uh, still they never would have had the longevity that they ended up with if it wasn't for this this 22 hours. And that tour was the highest grossing tour of 1986. That marathon on MTV, and then that show went into, I think they showed it every day a couple of times in like at noon and at five and at 10 o'clock at night for a whole summer and maybe longer than that in 86. Yeah, it seemed like it kept around for a little while. And I remember catching some of the like the later episodes like when they first started out, it, it was only on for three years. Right. But when they first, the first season, they were kind of like pretty clean cut and all that. But by the time the third season rolled around, they really had embraced the whole hippie thing. Yeah. Frodus, man. <laughs> yeah. And, but it introduced a whole new generation of people to their music, and they could see the influence that they had on pop music going forward. It also gave a boost to some of the bands that ended up touring with them. Like, that's how I listened to a lot of Herman's Hermits. And how I listened to a lot of like Gary Puckett and the Union Gap, who I only knew them from being mentioned on TV commercials about greatest hits records from certain years. Yeah, I was about to say like the late night. Uh, yeah, the late night uh, infomercial stuff. Yeah, twenty original hits on sixties gold. It's like, well, I don't even know who that band is, but now I do. <laughs> Thank you, monkeys. And it's too bad that Nesbitt didn't join that because one, it would have been monumental. Yeah, you know. And two, that would have been just like a license to print money for him. Yeah, and he's, he's an interesting guy. I don't know why he didn't do it. I guess it was one of those, like, I've got enough money. 
All right, so moving on to the 23rd, February the 23rd, 1896, Jeff, oh. is the first appearance on candy shelves of one of my long-term favorite candies, the Tootsie Roll. Oh, I love Tootsie Rolls. I don't even know what they're supposed to taste like, and I love them. <laughs> and, uh, they're vaguely chocolate, but they don't really... They're colored like chocolate, but they don't really taste like chocolate. Right, they're, they they're like chocolate... Taste like Tootsie Rolls-esque. Yeah. yeah, they have definitely yeah. have their own flavor. Yep. And it's delicious. It's like and a it's like a mix of not quite milk chocolate and the smell of shoe polish is what, what my yeah. brain puts together for the flavor of Tootsie Rolls. And these days they taste roughly like mercury because they pull the <laughs> fillings right out of my molars. Yeah. Oh I, man, I remember getting the big ones as a kid. The big yes. the ones that are like a half, uh, six inches long and two thirds of an inch thick. Oh yep, yep. God, those are my favorites. My jaw would hurt after chewing on those things. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was always, there was the Tootsie Pops too. How many licks does it take to Remember get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop, Bill? Yep. Uh, three. One, two, three. That's yeah, right. With the owl. Yes. Tootsie Rolls kind of like branched out over the years and now they're just basically Tootsie Rolls. Right. Um, there were other flavors though. They were like lemon and. Yeah. Pink. I used to love. <laughs> What would you say? Pink? I don't remember what the pink ones were flavored as. Oh, maybe it was pink lemonade. Maybe. Yeah. I used to like the colored one. The uh, the different kind of like variety flavors yeah. of them. Yep, I remember the but, the yellow uh, yellow banana flavored ones and vanilla and right. yeah, yeah, all good stuff. You still kind of get them you know, like by the bag full or whatever. Yes. Uh, my brother, whenever he comes over to watch wrestling, a lot of times he'll bring over a big bag of Tootsie Rolls. It's just... It's just good munchy candy, you know? In keeping with uh, products and or places that are named after the inventor's family, the Tootsie Roll yeah. is named after Leo Hirschfeld's daughter, Cookie. Uh, not Cookie, Clara. <laughs> <laughs> Cookie. Wrong, wrong name. Her, his daughter, Clara, whose nickname was Tootsie, which is oh, very okay. cute. Yes, I don't know why I said Cookie. Forget that That's I said really Cookie. That's really funny. Yes. Um, uh, oh, really? It was, oh, it was named after his daughter. That's like... Um, Wendy's. Yes. That was named after his daughter. Her daughter's his daughter's name was like Becky. Yes. Or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's not actually. I guess he wanted to protect her identity, but he wishes her name was Wendy or something. It was also the first individually wrapped penny candy in the United States, which was, a, I guess, oh, wow. a big deal in the you know 1890s as stores were becoming more commoditized, and shelf life and safety started to become an issue when you went to buy food so something that was individually wrapped was clearly going to be safer for you than putting your hand in a jar where somebody with diphtheria might have been in there last you know rolling oh, yeah. around looking, just... looking around for a, a caramel swirl or something yeah a big fish bowl full of like just unwrapped tootsie rolls just like uh, no 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 with somebody like routing around with their hands right hey get out of there <laughs> Weren't you the kid that was just sneezing into his hands? <laughs> yeah. So at least individually wrapped, they were prob they probably killed fewer people than like um, squirrel nut zippers or something. Yeah. Or Mary Janes. Mar Mary Janes. Oh God, I used to love those yeah. too. Ugh. Oh no All way! Right, the delicious candy, old candy. All right, let's move on to the twenty fourth. February twenty fourth is a fantastic holiday, Bill, known as Bartender Day. If you celebrate Bartender Day like I do. You sit at home, alone, you don't drink anything, and you have flashbacks to how much it sucks to be a bartender. 
Yeah, I remember we visiting you when you worked at your parents' restaurant. You were the bartender over there for a little while. Yeah. That doesn't seem like a great job. Unless you're a person that enjoys hanging around in bars, which <laughs> I'm I'm not. Well, <laughs> look, the, the maxim of, of like never open a bar because you want someplace free to drink is a thing that all people should know, right? Yeah. Um, also, if you think it's fun to be a bartender because it's fun to go to bars... Imagine you're always the designated driver. That's what it's like being a bartender, being in a room full of drunk assholes for eight to ten hours, and you rely on them to give you money so that you don't get evicted. That's what being a bartender is like. It is no fun at all. The worst people in the world to hang around with are a bunch of drunk people that you're ultimately responsible for. I am actually pretty well-versed in being the only sober person in the room. Uh, because, I mean, I typically don't drink. Mm -hmm. uh, I go very, very, very long spans of time without having any alcohol whatsoever. Right. And since I was like 30 years old, I think I've been drunk once by accident. Right. Yeah, being drunk is not something I enjoy. Being around a bunch of people that are drunk, I, I think I enjoy that less. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely is something that can in the in, in if you're in the, your formative years and thinking of making some quick money as a bartender will definitely prevent you from joining the ranks of problem alcoholics i think if you do it at a busy enough place just because it's such a difficult job and it's no fun yeah and at least you know that law went through you know however many years ago where people can't smoke inside the bars anymore because i can just imagine like I'm thinking about the kind of bars that I used to go to whenever I was in my 20s. You know, I didn't go to drink. I did drink, but I didn't go there to drink. I went right. there to watch bands. Right. So, I mean, the, if you didn't smoke cigarettes, you smoked cigarettes anyway. You just came home just reeking of it in your hair, on your clothes, everything. Oh, and yeah, imagine being trapped in a place for 10 hours a day where everybody around you is smoking all the time. Yeah. Admittedly, at the time, I used to smoke cigarettes too. So, gee, Jeff, why do you have heart problems? I have no idea why that could possibly be the case. But um, you are definitely going to end up on a statistic list somewhere. It's one of the reasons they ban smoking in bars and restaurants is because bartenders can't get out. Can't get away. They're there. They're right. stuck. All right. Let's uh, go on to the 25th. February the 25th, 1970. Your pal and mine, Ernie, who was voiced by Jim Henson, Debuts his bathtub sing-along song, Rubber Ducky, on <laughs> Sesame Street. I had that 45. Yeah. Well, I, a lot of people had that 45, Jeff, because that song went all the way up to number 16 yeah. on the uh, on the charts. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder how many times Henson, Henson hit the charts as a character from the Muppets or Sesame Street in over the course yeah. of his career. Right, because you figure Rainbow Connection probably did. You probably hit something. Yep. Um, it's not easy being green. Well, there was. I mean, I don't know if it was. Was it Frank Oz that did like the only adult song that came out of the Sesame Street gang? Was he? He was. The, was he the voice of Bert? Yeah, he was the voice of Bert, right? Yeah. Yeah. You don't. What remember, adult song? You what don't you remember? You don't remember the song that he did? That doing the pigeon. <laughs> I think you're reading a little farther into that. Doing the pigeon. You think the pigeon wanted that? I don't think the pigeon wanted that. I had all those records, or at least most of them. Did you have those? I had a bunch of them. I only had a couple of singles. I had the Rubber Ducky. I wish I could remember what was on the other side. But I, I mean, I was legit. I was under five, five years old. 
Oh, okay. No, we had the full records. We had like the, uh, like as each Muppet had their own record. My mother, I guess she read us very well because my brother had the Burt one and mm-hmm. I had the Ernie one. And if you meet us, we are kind of Ernie and Burt. My brother's a little more, he's not as uptight as Burt. Right. He's a little more, I don't want to say, when I say conservative, I don't mean it in a political fashion. I just mean a little more, he's a little more reserved than I am. I'm, I've always been the more extrovert one. Like I said, he's, I'm Ernie, he's Burt. Right. But I remember there was, I had a Big Bird one. He had an Oscar the Grouch one. There was a Grover one, a Cookie Monster one. I don't think I had the Cookie Monster the, one. No, the only other that, one that I that, remember having was the vinyl version that came with the book, There's a Monster at the End of This Book, which was a Grover record. Yeah, that wasn't a musical record. That was like to go along with the storybook. So, yeah, the, you know, boom, turn the page. Yes. Yeah, I wonder if those are available on Spotify. I'm gonna have to look. All right, let's wrap up the week, Jeff. All righty, February. Tw- speaking of record albums, February 26, 1954, Michigan Rep. Ruth Thompson, who was the first woman who was elected to the Michigan House of Representatives, introduces legislation to ban the mailing of obscene, lewd, lascivious, or filthy phonographic records. So basically, uh, the moral panic of rock and roll strikes the postal system. Right. She sounds like a lot of fun that way. I'm sure. And I wonder how she would identify obscene, lewd, lascivious, or filthy phonograph records in 1954, Bill. Do you have any guesses? Uh, I got one one wild ballpark guess, and that is going to have to do with the color of the skin of the artist. I would say the original versions of the songs that Pat Boone made famous would probably be on the list of obscene, lewd, lascivious, or filthy phonograph rock and roll records. Yeah. And that's not too far Uh, back in our history, Bill, which is really sad to think about as this comes around again and again and again. Oh, yeah. It's almost really uncomfortable to talk about because it's, it's such a weird part of our history where black artists you know the, their songs they they wouldn't play black artists on the radio right you would have to wait until some squeaky clean white artist recorded a version of the same song right or you had to listen to like black radio which is black owned radio stations because segregation also applied through the FCC which is really really weird to think about now mm-hmm Oh, it's it's I I think about it. I also think about like what it was like for the the most unrepresented class in the history of all people, at least in I'm going to say the modern era from the 1800s forward. To me, are teenagers. Yep. Teenagers are the ones who are almost adults but not quite. They sort of have rights, but they really don't. Yeah, you know, they could be sent off to fight a war, but they can't drink beer. Whatever. All of the moral panics are around what happens to them. It's because of things that they do, whether they do them or not. Whether it's saying that, you know, teenagers who read comic books are inherently juvenile delinquent, or they yep. listen to rock and roll records and they're going to start gangs and start stabbing each other with stick knives, or, you know, why can't we just put these kids back in the mine so they break rocks instead of for those, for those darn yep. unions from the 1890s that made it so we couldn't employ children to do dangerous work? Christ, I remember, not so much, it wasn't so much like a moral panic, but like, I remember when I first got out of high school and I started like going to shows and stuff like that. And, you know, it wasn't even called moshing yet. We were still calling it slam dancing, you know, and I was kind of like telling my mom what I was doing and all that. And then she watched a show. It was Quincy M.E. I'll never forget that. (laughs) Yes, the medical examiner show that all 
people of advanced age really loved in the late 70s yeah. and early 80s. Yeah. That tackled so the issues of was, the day. Yes. And the the issue of the day that my mom happened to catch an episode of was there were some punk rockers and they were slam dancing. And I guess somebody on the show like committed suicide. And like I was basically on suicide watch for a, co- <laughs> well, a couple of hours until I told my mom to stop watching stupid television shows. Right. She like sat me down and gave me the thought. She's like, Bill. Life's worth living. I'm like, what on God's green earth are you talking about, Ma? All I wanted was a Pepsi. Yeah. yeah. She's like, oh, don't tell me. I saw it on Quincy. I was like, Ma, it's scripted television. It's right. not what it's about. Oh, my God. You think you have it bad. So. My mom bought the transcript or had the transcript of the freaking episode of Oprah where they went through the Procter & Gamble symbol as a symbol of the, <laughs> as a symbol of the devil. And like hand it was like showing it to me, and I was, I just I shook my head and was uh, astonished. You could have just given me twenty dollars, uh, yeah. mom, and I could have lied to you about whatever. But instead, you spent it to get it all written out on paper. All right, mom, I promise, no more Folgers coffee right. for me. That's it. I'll never I'll... use soap again, and I yeah. haven't since. No, that's not true. All right, let's go on to the celebrity birthdays. Oh, okay. I am stealing this joke from Steve Martin, but it's it's worth making. February the 20th, 1966, Cindy Crawford, a woman who is so conceited, she has never even called me once. (laughs) And after all the hours I spent holding up her poster with only one hand. Yes. (laughs) That is an old Steve Martin joke. I remember her. Yeah. uh, I mean, she was the first, like, supermodel that was in all brands of advertising Yes. That I remember by name. There was a commercial where she just went to a vending machine and drank a Pepsi. Yep. And all I wanted to do after watching that was, like, hang around Pepsi machines just in case. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, <laughs> just, you, just, you know what? I've got 55 cents, girlfriend. But she was everywhere for a while and sort of set the, yep. set the ideal of what fashion models would be. And that was right before a sort of Kate Moss who weighed as much as one of Cindy Crawford's arms, became the face <laughs> of, of modeling, which was the heroin chic thing. But she was definitely more old school. And the other thing is Cindy Crawford had that famous mole. Yes. You know, just just off to the side of her of her lip there, like uh, uh, just to the side of her upper lip, this beautiful imperfection. And I remember my friend Jen had like almost – the exact same beauty mark. Right. So that was a it was a good time for her to have that, you know? Yeah, did Jen put it on with a Sharpie? I know people that used to like no, put that no, mark on. No. No, no, it was legit. It was there. Oh wow. All right, let's move on to the twenty first. February twenty first, nineteen sixty one. Movie star Christopher Atkins. Probably best Ooh. known <laughs> probably best known for his role in the baboon filled extravaganza Shakma. Oh, I love that movie. <laughs> Shakma. I love that movie as much as Shakma hates doors. <laughs> he was also, uh, it was also a big deal. He was in a movie called The Blue Lagoon, which I don't remember as well as Shakma because I watched Shakma <laughs> much more recently. Right. Christopher Atkins was definitely overshadowed by the hellaciously young and still weirdly unclothed Brooke Shields in The Blue Lagoon. Yeah, she had the mermaid hair, the mo- the mermaid yeah. booby hair going for her. Yeah. yeah, the fact that she was in that really overshadowed him as an actor in it as well. He did some other stuff, but like most of it is 
is not as memorable as Shockma. I'm looking at his IMDb right now, and you could add up all of the like the score like out of ten. Yeah. Of all of his movies, and it would take you a long time before you hit ten. Yeah. yeah. The only other movie in here that I can I'm looking at, I don't know any of these movies. The only one I could think of that he was in was one called The Pirate Movie that I think my brother used to watch because... That was the spoof of The Pirates of Penzance. That movie was pretty funny. Was it? Yeah, that was a cable TV staple for like two years when I was in my teens that I watched a million (laughs) thousand times. I couldn't tell you anything that happens in it now because my brain has erased it and covered over those, those memories with like pictures of squirrels or little gifts of Homer Simpson, but... I remember watching it a bunch of times. All right, moving on to the 22nd. February the 22nd, 1962. Australian naturalist and crocodile enthusiast, Mm. Steve Irwin. Did you used to watch that show? I used to watch The Crocodile Hunter quite a bit. And I don't know if it was morbid curiosity more than anything else, but watching him be really affectionate towards like 26-foot-long saltwater crocodiles, spiders that could kill you with a bite... Bats that could carry away your children. Uh, Other animals that would punch you to death or kick you until you were dead. And managed to make it both interesting and heartwarming at the same time. Had a a big draw. I used to watch it like here and there. I would like catch pieces of it. But the whole thing was, or the whole thing is, because it's currently still the same. I am terrified of almost every animal on the planet. (laughs) Like, if you have a cat at your house... It's fine. But if that cat makes any sudden moves towards me, I am shrieking like yeah. a little girl and jumping into your arms. The audience, you should see Bill around like a Siamese fighting fish. You can't even get him in the house. <laughs> you know the the Jackass movies? Yes. Right? Anytime there's a sketch that they do with, like, animals, I am, like, mo- not mortified, but I'm, like, very uncomfortable well, because... A sketch that involves I- animals or animals and animal waste because what I remember jackass was like lots and lots of shows where there was animal waste was a component but the animal was oh, there no, from they, the beginning of it no they, they they like do a sketch where they're in a ball pit like a like a chuck e cheese kind of ball pit yep. with a freaking anaconda in the middle of it i'm like no oh yeah no 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 nope. no no get out of there no nope. would have been a good episode of that show would be like if we man had to fight a kangaroo <laughs> all right let's go on to the 23rd February 23rd, 1955, Brit Rock piano guy, I guess. I don't know that he had a band as well as much as he had musicians with him, but Howard Jones, who is probably best known for the single Things Can Only Get Better here in the United States, but he had more singles over in the UK. Yeah. Howard Jones, as far as I know, was one of those one-man bands. I don't know right. how many studio musicians he had on his albums. I think he did a lot of that stuff by himself. I always think of him as being on stage with other people, and it's because like those are the musicians that I mean that he hires, not so much that he uses yeah. them when he records. Well, he's not going to be like one of those one-man band things with like a drum set <laughs> strapped to his back. Yeah. And the symbols at his knees. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Um, and a kazoo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, no, Howard Jones is primarily a synthesizer mm-hmm. uh, player. I remember watching like a documentary, not documentary, but like a little MTV story about him. And not unlike our friend Charlie Puth, who we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, he used to like go around the house and like bang on a toaster with a fork and record the noise and just looking for different 
musical sounds around his house and right. then feeding them into a synthesizer and making music, you know, from those sounds. I remember him best from his his, you know, from the videos he had on MTV where I would be excited and then realize it wasn't Thomas Dolby. And then <laughs> I would be less excited. That's really how I always looked at him as like the oh, that's not Thomas Dolby. And as weird as that sounds. Yeah, he but he was like a less weird Thomas Dolby. He was like a more pop sensible Thomas Dolby. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, way more poppy dancey than than Thomas Dolby was. Yep. And uh, John Hughes was obviously a huge fan because he used him in a bunch of his movies. Yes. That's the other place that I remember hearing a bunch of his songs. Also in Better Off Dead. All right. Moving on to the 24th. February the 24th, 1968. Comedian took away from us way too early. Mitch Hedberg. Oh, I remember him. He was funny. Yeah. I really liked Mitch Hedberg. He was one of those comedians. He used to do like the non sequitur jokes. He would yep. just like say say something weird. And then say something else weird that had like nothing to do with the other thing that you just said. It was his delivery that made his stuff funny. Yes. I think more than anything else. And he, he was the voice. I can't remember what his name was, but he was the voice of the, like, the bully character on home movies. And he was always really funny as oh, that, that was character. Him, yeah. yeah, that was Mitch Hedberg. He had like weird anxieties. Like if you ever watch his stand up, he would always wear sunglasses and he would perform with his eyes closed. He wouldn't really like look at the audience too much because he would he would, he was intimidated by him. He would freak him that. out. Yeah, I, I can yeah. see that. My favorite Mitch Hedberg joke was he said, "On a traffic light, green means go, yellow means slow down, and red means stop. But on a banana, it's just the opposite. Green means hold on, slow down. Yellow means okay, you're good to go. And red means wait a." Did you get that banana? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I don't have a favorite of his because I don't know his stand-up all that well. But I remember watching his specials on uh, HBO back in London. All right, let's go on to the 25th. February 25th, 1965, another comedian, Carrot Top, or Scott Thompson is his name. Mm -hmm. He's a primarily a prop comic, and people run like super-duper hot and cold with Carrot Top. Either they think yep. he's the funniest you can see... Or they absolutely hate him to the point where they can't stand him. I fall yeah. into the first category. I think he's funny. And I like prop comedy. So that's two good things going for him. Yeah, that's a thing. Like prop comedy, yeah, that's a real hard sell for some people. Mm -hmm. You know, think about it. It's almost like ventriloquism. Yes. There's not really a lot of prop comics out there anymore. Right. You know, no, no I it's, think it's definitely, I, it's a tiny, tiny subset in the pantheon of uh, stand-up comedians. And that, and the thing is, if you're going to come out as a prop comic now, people are going to compare you to Carrot Top. Just like if you're going to try to get out there as a ventriloquist, people are going to go, oh, Jeff Dunham, you know? Yep. Yeah, and I can only think of a handful of prop comics that I've ever seen do stand-up. Him, Gallagher, and yep. Joel Hodgson from Mystery Science Theater 3000. And, uh... Yeah. There's a couple of other ones that I've seen pieces where they do, like, they use equipment as part of their act, but not the same way that those three did. Yeah. You know? I remember seeing, like, one guy that was, like, on, like, remember MTV used to do the half-hour comedy hour? Yes. Yeah, I, I remember seeing one guy on there that did prop comedy, but, I mean, Carrot Top just owns that. Carrot Top. Got really, 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 really super muscular. Yep. Remember how weird that looked? It still looks weird because he's still super muscular. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
he's still got a Vegas residency to the yep. best of my knowledge. He does. And the story of how he ended up there is pretty interesting. Like he was playing some show at he was, you know, doing college campuses. Yeah. And he got a call from somebody who's had gone to see his show at a college, I think, with his daughter. Yeah. And the guy said, You are Las Vegas. You need to come out here. And he booked him in like Caesar's Palace or something. Yep. And flew him out and he started working the, a, a 600 person room, like from scratch. Yep. And he did it for a year. And then he went to another hotel with a bigger room, 1,500 people. And he said that, like, what he had to do is he had to learn how to do comedy to the audience. He had to tailor it to the audience in Vegas because the audience right. in Vegas is so different than college campuses. Sure. So he, like, it would start off like the show was, he didn't think the show was funny. Like, nobody's really reacting to it. And he had to keep evolving it. And he was so happy that both of these places gave him the time to build his act. So now he is, like, the quintessential Vegas comic. Yep. He's a really interesting guy to listen to talk. All right. And then wrapping up the celebrity birthdays, February the 26th, 1920, American actor Tony Randall, probably Ah. best known as the voice of the hyper-intelligent Grevelity Grevelins too. <laughs> Actually, he was probably best known as playing the super neat freak Felix Unger on The Odd Couple from 1970 to 1975. Yes. He was also, he had a he had a big career in movies before he made the move to TV in the 1970s, too. He did a bunch of unusual, like, he was always the second guy in, like, Dean yeah. Martin movies and stuff. Sure. He did a whole bunch of funny movies where he was second build or third build in a cast of, like, you know, Rock Hudson and someone else. But it, it, he's always been really, really, really good in what he's yep. done. I, he had a sitcom, like, in the late 80s, too. Nope, you're thinking of the late 70s. He had his own TV show, The Tony Randall Show, where he played a judge. Uh, one of the more interesting things about Mr. Randall is when... His wife of 54 years passed away. He was 75 years old. Yep. And then he married a girl that was 25 years old. Her name was Heather Halloran. Mm-hmm. And they had two kids together. He fathered two kids at 75. Well, uh, 75 and I'm like, I'll guess like 78 or whatever. But go Tony. It's funny because his characters that he played were always, they always sort of fell into like the, I'm going to say this, and I do not mean this as a derogatory comment. It's a character description. But, like, almost like the, the, the gay best friend of, like, the male character who's a real womanizer. You know? Yes. Like, the guy yeah. who's, like, the more effeminate guy, like, the wingman, but the, the non-dangerous wingman. And he was, he yes. was, like, he was married to his high school sweetheart <laughs> since he was, like, 17 or 18 years old. All the yep. way until she passed away, yeah. Yeah, and then he he go with somebody 50 years younger than him. Go Tony. It's like uh, Dick Van Dyke doing the same thing. Like his his wife is like fifty three and he's one hundred and eighty two years old. <laughs> I can't I can't even imagine what those birthday parties are like. Right? Hey, blow out the candles, pull the pin, <laughs> aim at the cake, squeeze the trigger. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Jeff, it's it's gonna happen again. I I don't have a segue. The worst song ever. All right, Jeff, your turn to pick a song for the worst song ever. What do we have this week? Today we're, we're talking about the phenomenon of ill-advised cover songs, Bill. There mm-hmm. are several ill-advised cover songs that could make the jump from 
playlists on Spotify or stuff that you hear on terrestrial radio directly into the worst song ever. The one okay. that I picked for this week as our as we begin our foray into this over the next year or so is the inconceivably bad Counting Crows cover of Joni Mitchell's 1970 sort of artsy-fartsy, earthy-firthy, hippy-dippy classic Big Yellow Taxi. You took all the trees and put them in a tree museum And charged the people a dollar and a half to see them No, 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 don't it always seem to go That you don't know what you got till it's gone You'd be in paradise and put up a fucking lie Okay, so this song is called Big Yellow Tax. I mean, I know the Joni Mitchell song. Yes. I, I don't want to use the word hate because I think the word hate is boring. I adhor. I don't have the vocabulary to describe how much I hate the Joni Mitchell song. Ah. And yeah, it's no, 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 no. And obviously I thought the name of the song was Pave Paradise and put up a parking lot. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just find it pretentious. And it's like doubly so pretentious now with County Crows doing it. Yeah. And, and admittedly, I like the Joni Mitchell song in the sphere of where it comes in the history of like rock and roll and folk rock. 1970 is that weird convergence period where hippies and folk rockers sort of mash together and you get Joni Mitchell, you get Melanie Safka, you get other bands that do this kind of stuff. Uh-huh. It's preachy then, but you can understand it being preachy then because of the audience for it. Yep. In 2004? Way less so. Right. Knowing that uh, this was the third single, which is not unusual, I guess, for a cover to be the third single, but the third single from the uh, the Hard Candy record that... Counting Crows put out a record that I will tell you I have never listened to all the way through and couldn't name any of the other songs on. Right. This is the one that I remember the video for being on VH1. And every time it came on, which for a very short time was in heavy rotation, it was like four weeks. You couldn't get away from it. And then it just didn't have any legs, so it vanished. Oh, they had a video for this song? Oh, yeah. Yes, and it oh, no. sucks. It's, oh. uh, what's his name? Adam Dur- Duritz walking around in a city. Being oh. really heartfelt and trying really hard to do the best Scott Stapp impression he ever did. And it <laughs> sucks and it makes me mad and it makes Joni Mitchell mad. It's one of those songs, and there's a lot of songs in this category. It's a cover of a song, but they they completely change the genre. Yes. You know, it's not like doing it to be quirky or weird or funny like Limp Biscuit doing George Michael's Faith. Or the Ramones covering just about anything. Right. You know, this is just like, oh, we're going to cover this Joni Mitchell song, and we're going to do it in whatever genre you would put the Counting Crows in. I can't nail them down to a genre. They're kind of, they really kind of sound like the Counting Crows and Little Else. <laughs> well, like, for me, they, they fall into that stew of bands that were not new metal, didn't have any hip-hop pretensions at all, and played to the slightly older and more sophisticated audience that generally would complain about lewd, lascivious, and obscene record albums being sent through the mail in the 1950s, like right. the Dave Matthews Band, and like Hootie and the Blowfish, and like Cake. I like Cake. There was another one that did a cover and changed the genre, because they did Cake did that cover of... I Will Survive, that used to drive me banana cake. Yes, that song will find its way to more detailed discussion here on 
<laughs> this week was way better last year. You can mark your calendars for that, kids. Um, <laughs> but and also like Blues Traveler, like it falls into that group. I think that the fans who fall into the group that like that music are people who don't like music. Yeah. Just in general. They're much more comfortable, like, it's on in the background, and yeah, I can hum along to it. It's good when I'm throwing darts at the bar and drinking, you know, Bud Light or whatever. You can mash it all together, and you can't tell one from the other. It's like all the characters in American Psycho, right? You can't tell (laughs) who's who. Today, doing my research, I watched an interview with whatever his name is. I don't know. Adam Adam Duritz. Aaron Duritz. I watched an interview with him. He doesn't have his dreads anymore. He cut off all of his... uh... He cut off all of his hair. He just looks like a normal, you know, slightly overweight dude. Like, you would never guess that that's him to look yeah. at him now, you know? Yeah. He was talking about, you know, him and his friend, whose name happens to be Jones, were sitting in a bar in Amsterdam. I guess the song Wicked Game by Chris Isaac was on, or maybe Chris Isaac was playing. Whatever it was, that person was getting all the attention. And they right. weren't really a band yet. And right. they were like, "This is the this is the way to do it, man. These guys got all the attention, all the money, all the girls, everything." So he went home and he wrote the song "Mr. Jones," which was the big, you know, the song that, that catapulted the one the, big real hit. Yeah, yeah, the one that catapulted the superstardom, and it was basically a song about wanting to be famous. And he got it, and he hated it. And yeah, he's got like a few personality disorders i guess you would say he's they, they said he's got the dissociative disorder which people confuse with multiple personality which is it's not it's a completely different thing right um he's like sybil's but, stepsister yeah he's like two or three of sybil's personalities uh no I, like i said the split personality doesn't actually exist that's a, for a discussion for another time yeah the whole like being famous thing he never really liked it and they became very famous very fast. Yes. And the music critics loved the album and all mm-hmm. that. Musically, I think it's not bad at all. I think it's a perfectly, Mr. Jones specifically, let me yeah. clarify, is I think is a, is a perfectly well-crafted pop song for a non-rock and roll, almost country style, quote unquote, late alternative band. It hits all of the same notes that any if you were describing like 1998 to somebody and said it sounded like this, you could yeah, put that yeah, on and it, yeah. it's what it sounded like. It, uh, it sounded exactly like 1998. He goes, and then he goes, whenever something becomes super popular and super ubiquitous like that, of course there's going to be backlash. Right. And he goes, I see all these people in the early goings of like the internet, uh, you know, before there was ever social media. This was talking about like the AOL forums. He goes, and people are just like bashing me and bashing my band. And I'm like, I agree. That song sucks. I hate it. <laughs> right, right. It's tough too. Like, yeah, he was there at the kind of the birth of social media. I'm sure that that didn't do his psyche any favors. Right. But again, we're not here so much to sort of psychoanalyze Adam Duritz and instead like ill-advised like there's some I'm sure that this song wasn't picked to be on this record because someone said you know what we should do in the band we should do that Big Yellow Taxi song by Joni Mitchell won't that be awesome I love that song okay but hear me out hear me out we're gonna do that song except we're gonna change everything about it the chord structure the Not the, so much the lyrics, but the way the lyrics flow. We're definitely going to change that, too. It, instead, it was somebody, I'm sure, from their record company said, like, look, I don't hear another single on here. 
We need a cover. And you know what? That Alien Ant Farm band, they did that that Michael Jackson cover. They got that went gold. And yeah. we got to do something like that. We got to find something weird. Uh, you do what you can with it, and then inexplicably they stick it out as a single. It was the it was the last song on the record. Originally, it was a hidden track, and yet it was the third single released because it's a song that people know. Old DJs would go like, "Oh, Big Yellow Taxi, that old Joni Mitchell song. Yeah, I bet that sounds cool," and put it on on the radio. <laughs> So that Joni uh, Mitchell goes like, oh, God, I hate you. This was my first introduction to Counting Crows doing that. I never knew that they covered this song. Counting Crows never really landed on my radar other than, oh, that's the guy with the dreadlocks that dances really emotively. <laughs> and honestly, I didn't I didn't know they had a lot of albums. They don't yeah. have a lot. They don't have a lot considering four, how long they were for. Yeah. Yeah, five, six plus. And they just put out a single recently, like last mm -hmm. year or the year before. And their sound has evolved a little bit from record to record, but not much. They still mm -hmm. play to the same sort of niche audience of people who still listen to like the Dave Matthews Band and a Darius Rucker as a solo artist. and To a very much different degree, though, because you can go online and find pictures of people with tattoos, large tattoos, Jeff, of Adam Duritz. Like, I actually knew somebody that had a very large tattoo of Adam Duritz on his back. Well, look, man, I have a very large tattoo of Chris Isaacs on my back, and look where that got me. <laughs> you birthed the Counting Crows. It's your fault. It's all my fault. Adam Duritz saw your, saw your tattoo and said, that's what I need. Right, me backing Chris Isaac as the future of rock and roll music was clearly the right choice because... Counting Crows has exactly three more signals than Chris Isaac ever had, I guess. <laughs> he has a video, Bill. A video that was played on television late at night once. All right, uh, before we wrap up the show, I do have to uh, answer the very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Uh-oh. Oh, I remember. In the movie... Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the original. Yes. Our friend Charlie and his Grandpa Joe grab the very last of the golden tickets, but which of those little brats was the first one to find a golden ticket? If my memory is not faulty, it's entirely possible that the first golden ticket was found by the lovely Violet Beauregard. Ooh, ooh, Violet. You're turning Violet, Violet. Yes, uh, the one no. who's been chewing gum for like 13 months or something, and her more than her friend Cornelia so-and-so, as she said oh on television. God. You know, I was so afraid of balloons when I was a kid. I could not watch that scene. I used to run screaming <laughs> from the room because I thought she was going to pop, and it was just going to be, yeah, uh, no. Blue guts everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so, no, that is not actually the right answer. The correct answer, the person... Uh, that found the first golden ticket, and he was also the first to perish, was Augustus Gloop. Yep. Ah, it was either him or her. I couldn't remember the order. I remember Mike TV was second to last, and Veruca Salt got one because her father's at the the Salt Peanut Factory had people unwrapping them instead of shell shelling peanuts. Yeah. Yeah, unwrapping them. pound in your pay packet if you find them. Yeah. Okay, so that's going to wrap up the show for this week. Uh, we will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys.
A special thanks to James Costa for our theme song. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. You can find us or message us over at Facebook or Instagram using TWWWBLY. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And remember, if everybody listens to the show, gets one more person to listen, we'll double our listenership. <laughs>